Welcome to another episode of the NFT Report. I'm your host, Clint Olson. Today, we're going to talk about the NFT transaction. What is it? What are you actually doing when you purchase an NFT? What are you actually getting? Those are some of the things we're going to discuss today, just so that you have a better understanding of how this all works. Now, before we get into anything again, standard disclaimer, I'm not your financial representative. I'm not a licensed financial representative for that matter, and uh, this is not meant to be investment advice. It is for informational purposes only. Okay, everyone, you get me today. Derek uh, still has real life stuff going on. He can't join us in our fantasy land of NFTs today. So we'll keep this episode short, but I think it's important that if you're in the NFT space, you should understand at least at a high level what's going on when you perform an NFT transaction. In other words, when you buy one or when you mint one for that matter too. Similar process, same kinds of things happen, but you need to understand what's going on here. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about what you're actually getting with an NFT, how that works, and then what happens during the transaction. And then we'll discuss a little bit about gas fees. A lot of people get confused around gas fees, what they are, why you even have to pay them, and how to set gas fees properly during a transaction. So we'll talk about some of that too. But let's go ahead and get started. So when you buy an NFT, what are you getting? Let's talk about that first, because that sort of underlies the foundation of all of this. You need to understand what it is that you're purchasing when you buy an NFT. So we've talked a little bit about this before in our episode on NFTs, but uh, we'll get in a little bit more detail today. Basically, when you purchase an NFT, what you're actually purchasing or what you're actually getting is not necessarily the art, right? Now that's confusing for some. What you're actually getting with NFT, you think of the NFT like ownership of the art or some certificate that says that you own a piece of art. You could think of it a little bit like when you buy a house. The title of the house is is not the house, right? But it shows that you own the house. Now, the house, of course, is separate from the title. It's the thing that you're interested in. Uh, But when you purchase a house, you get this certificate of ownership, this title that says you own it. Same kind of thing is going on with NFTs. So at the at the highest level, an NFT is just something that transfers ownership or denotes ownership of a digital asset. Sometimes that asset or what you think of as the art is part of the NFT, meaning that it is stored on the blockchain, right? In the metadata, maybe something like that for the NFT. But a lot of times the art is not stored on the blockchain. And the reason for that is... Well, first of all, storing stuff on the blockchain is expensive and you have a very limited size of what you can actually put on the blockchain. There's a, there's a file size limit, right? So if you have art that is high resolution graphics, three-dimensional, it looks really interesting. Um, maybe it even has some kind of animated feature to it. Chances are that's not going to fit on the blockchain. And so the actual art piece of the NFT is stored somewhere else. And we'll talk a little bit about where that's stored in a second, but it's important to understand that you're not always getting the art as part of the NFT, or in other words, the art is not always stored on the blockchain. 
And that's important for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, if the art is not stored on the blockchain, then you want to make sure it's stored somewhere that if, say, the artist blows up their computer, their database, or the company that you bought it from goes out of business, or any of those kinds of things, you want to be able to make sure that that art is still going to exist. Otherwise, all you have is something that an NFT that says you own a piece of art and it points to where that art should be, but maybe it just gives you a 404 error or something, right? When you try to look at that art or you try to get to that JPEG file or, or whatever it is, right? So that makes your NFT a lot less attractive. Owning something that doesn't exist or is no longer accessible isn't all that exciting. And so it's a good idea when you're purchasing NFTs to make sure you understand where the art is stored, or if there is any kind of art component to it, where is that stored, right? Where is that data stored? Is it on-chain or is it somewhere else? If it's on-chain, it's pretty safe, right? As long as the Ethereum blockchain exists or whatever blockchain you happen to be buying your NFT on, as long as that exists, your NFT artwork will exist, right? So not much to worry about there. If, if the Ethereum blockchain ceases to exist, you have bigger problems than whether you have the art for your NFT or not. Uh, if it's stored somewhere else, though, then that's where you need to be careful. Many times the art is stored on what's called the IPFS. You've maybe heard this before. IPFS just stands for Inter Interplanetary File System. I don't know why. I don't know why they call it that. I think it's only on one planet currently. But anyway. <laughs> Hey, uh, the idea is that with IPFS, it's a distributed file system, right? And so there's many copies of this file system around the world. It's immutable permanent storage, and uh, it's a way to keep larger file sizes off of the blockchain, but still in a place that they should be accessible for all time, right? As long as electricity exists and the internet exists and these kinds of things exist, then the IPFS will be around. So that's a good thing, right? If the art side of your NFT is stored there, you can have a fairly high degree of confidence that it'll continue to exist, even if, say, the company or project leaders that, that started your project go away or crash their hard drive or something like that, right? So that's that's important. Um, so if, if the art piece is on the IPFS, you're in good shape. What you don't want to see is the artwork of your NFT is stored on some private server somewhere. Pay attention to where things are stored. Ask yourself that question when you're thinking of purchasing an NFT. Yes, the NFT says that I own something, but what is it that I own and where is that stuff, right? Is the artwork on the chain? Is it on the IPFS? Is it on somebody's hard drive in their grandma's basement? You need to know. <laughs> you need to know this stuff. Otherwise, you're eventually going to pay the price at least once. So that might beg the question, what do you actually own when you have an NFT? Um, in many cases right now with the current NFT space, what you own is a piece of artwork, digital art. And that digital art lives either on the chain or it lives in the IPFS. Okay. So you have an NFT, you know where its art is stored. There's another aspect to this that people often don't consider. And the question is, what do you really own? Right. Or how, what are your rights of ownership to that art or music or whatever it happens to be that's attached to that NFT? So that depends on the rights that are transferred to you. I think a lot of people believe that when they purchase an NFT, they have full rights to it. In other words, they can resell it, they can put it on a t shirt and sell t shirts of it. 
These are full commercial rights that you're talking about and full copyrights that you're talking about. And most of the time when you purchase an NFT that's some kind of artwork, the full rights to that are not being transferred to you. That has to be explicitly done either you know, in a contract of some sort, or it needs to be specified in the NFT metadata somehow, or in the description of the NFT, or on the website of the place that you purchased it from. It needs to be explicit that they're transferring full rights to you. What's most likely happening is you're just getting some limited rights to that piece of art. In other words, you're purchasing the art for your own personal use. You can hang it in your house or show it to your friends, that kind of thing. It doesn't necessarily give you the right to go and put it in a, a museum somewhere or to make prints of it and sell it or any of those kinds of things. Use it for marketing, for instance, on, on your company page. The copyright needs to be explicitly transferred to you to be able to do a lot of those things and full commercial rights. So these are other things that you need to keep in mind. So when you're purchasing this NFT, again, where's the artwork stored? And what kind of ownerships do you actually have to that artwork or that music or whatever else happens to be associated with that NFT? Many times it's less than what you think. And maybe that doesn't matter to you, but it's just important to be aware of it. So now that we know a little bit more about what an NFT is, what you actually own, where that data is stored, what happens in a transaction when you purchase an NFT? So you go on OpenSea, you find you know, a board ape that you like. You have an extra 60 ETH burning hole in your pocket. And you want to get into the Board Ape Yacht Club. We should all be so lucky. But uh, <laughs> in any in any case, you're, you're, you found one that you like and you want to purchase it. So you click on it. You click buy now. We'll assume that that's the functionality you're going to use. And if you're using a MetaMask wallet or hardware wallet that's attached to MetaMask, you'll get a pop-up that asks you to sign that transaction. Okay, well, what does that mean? So you're approving the transaction by signing it with your public key on your wallet, right? So you have a private key, you have a public key. Your public key is like the thing, it's the thing you use to sign transactions and you can prove that you own that public key with your private key, right? At a high level, that's what's going on. We're not going to get into the whole Bob and Alice crap that usually people discuss when they talk about private key encryption and all these things. But the point is, is that you use that public key to sign the transaction. Well, what happens next? So you sign this transaction to purchase this board ape. What actually is occurring behind the scenes is that transaction is going to interact with the contract that created that NFT or that the NFT is associated with, right? It's a smart contract. That's the whole value of having the NFTs on the Ethereum blockchain is that the Ethereum blockchain supports smart contracts. Not all blockchains do. If you don't know what a smart contract is, I mean, it sounds super sophisticated, but it's really just a little piece of code that does something, right? And uh, it transfers ownership of one F- NF- of an NFT from one wallet to another, or it you know, adds attributes to something, or it mints the NFT, creates it, generates it in some way. Um, it validates that somebody owns that particular NFT. That's what that contract does. So when you go to purchase it from somebody else, you will interact behind the scenes, OpenSea or wherever you're buying it from. It's going to interact with the contract associated with that NFT to transfer ownership between uh, the person you're purchasing it from and yourself. That's really all that's going on, right? 
So these contracts manage the ownership of the NFTs, ownership, transfer, that kind of thing. They have to adhere to a particular interface. You've probably heard the terms like ERC-721 and ERC-1155 and all these things, right? Again, they sound complicated, but they're very, actually very simple. So both of these are just interfaces that are defined for different ways of dealing with NFTs. So ERC-721 is a single NFT interface, meaning that there's one contract per NFT and it defines what functionality that contract has to support, right? It has to support transferring the NFT from one wallet to another, right? It has to support validating who owns that NFT, that kind of thing. So it's just an agreed upon set of functionality that we, we've we all agreed that an NFT implementing the ERC721 interface should have this functionality. And the reason we do that in the code world is so that we can treat all these different NFTs in the same way, right? I can use the same functionality on a board ape as I can on a world of woman, as I can on a on a crypto punk, right? Because they all implement an interface that's familiar. The other interface is the ERC 1155, which is simply just the multi-token interface. In other words, it just is again an interface that defines some functionality that lets you work with multiple tokens at a time instead of just a single, single token. It all does, it's up to the developers, the creators of the project, what kind of contract interface do they want to use for their NFT? They can choose to use 721 or ERC 1155, totally their choice. Okay. So backing up just a little bit here, again, we started our transaction to buy this board ape. We approved the transaction. We signed it with our public key. Now we interact with the contract for that NFT to transfer the ownership from the wallet of the current holder to our wallet since we want to purchase it. But that's not the end. So that just sets up a transaction or a transfer that needs to happen. That transaction still needs to be recorded on the blockchain. And in order for that to happen, a new block needs to be created. And the transaction that of your purchase, your transaction needs to be added to that block and validated by miners. And then that block gets added to the blockchain, right? Again, the steps are you approve the transaction, you sign the transaction. Those are kind of the same step, really. It interacts with the contract to create the transaction that then needs to be recorded on the blockchain. In order for your transaction to be recorded on the blockchain, you have to pay a transaction fee. And that's where this is where gas fees come in. Now, at a very high level, it's very simple. You pay a small fee to have your transaction executed and recorded on the blockchain. Think of it like paying a fee when you want to wire funds to somebody else, to your bank. It's kind of like that. It's important, though, to understand how these gas fees and the transaction works, because oftentimes I see people get confused by this. And so what's going on here is that you can think of when you pay for when you're paying gas for a transaction, what you're actually doing is you're paying a fee that covers the computation costs of executing that transaction on the blockchain, as well as a little bit extra to pay the the miners that are mining that transaction to validate the block of transactions that your transaction is part of. You specify the price you're willing to pay in GUI or GUI or GUI. <laughs> I don't know how you, I don't know how you want to say it, but choose one. Um, I say GUI. Uh, so the GUI is, you can just think of it as like the price per gallon or price per liter for the gas, right? You're specifying how much you're willing to pay per unit of gas. And depending on how much you're willing to pay, 
your transaction will go through either sooner or later. In other words, your transaction gets prioritized based off of how much you are willing to pay to have your transaction executed. This is important to understand because I think a lot of people lose money on failed transactions because they didn't allow themselves to pay enough for gas or they didn't specify that they would pay enough for gas. And so it's important to pay attention to like what the current gas prices are on the network. There are tools out there for doing that. I use Block Native for that. Uh, I find it very useful. Depending on the transaction model that your NFT is using, you'll encounter kind of two different protocols. There's the standard model, then there's this, and then there's EIP 1559 or the London, the London update, I think is what they call it, uh, that recently went through on the Ethereum blockchain. And then the standard model, you just specify your GUI price per unit. And if it's high enough, you'll get your transaction to go through faster, right? It's really very much under the standard model. Whoever's willing to pay the most GUI per unit usually gets their transaction to happen faster. And so you can get into a little bit of a gas war with people for that, especially at a a minting time for a popular project. Uh, But essentially, if you want your transaction to go through faster, you need to pay more money. That's what it comes down to. Sometimes if it's a really popular NFT, you might end up paying more in gas than you do for the NFT itself. Of course, I only recommend doing that if you think there's a there's a uh, high potential for price appreciation on that NFT, but that kind of goes without saying. <clears throat> so the standard model is pretty straightforward, right? Pay more, transaction happens faster. You still are competing against everyone else. So if you're looking at Block Native, for instance, and the current gas prices are around 100 GUI, maybe you put yours in for 150, right? And your transaction will happen faster. And then you have the EIP 1559 protocol. This is part of uh, an effort to help make the transaction fees on the Ethereum network cost less money. There's some argument about whether that actually accomplished that objective or not. But when you're working with an NFT that uses this protocol, you're going to see a few different things on the uh, part of your transaction on, on MetaMask where you specify gas fees that can be confusing. So you're going to see a base fee. You'll see a priority fee, a max fee, and a gas limit. And it's important to understand what these are so that you can set them appropriately for your transaction. Okay, so how how can we set these when we're when we're performing a transaction on an NFT that uses this protocol? Okay, so if you see that the base fees are the base fee is 100 GUI on on block native. If you want your transaction to go through right now, you're probably going to need to set that max fee higher, higher than the current base fee of 100 GUI. You'd need to set it at like 125, 150, something like that. Your transaction won't go through unless it's equal to or higher than the current fee. The more you set it to, the more you're willing to pay, the faster your transaction is going to go through. So if you don't mind waiting until gas goes down, you can set a max fee that's lower than the current base fee. So let's say you have some NFT you want to buy, and it doesn't matter if you get it right now or sometime overnight, maybe you just don't care that much, or even any transaction for that matter that uses this protocol. Uh, You can set your base fee to, or your max fee to whatever you want the gas fees to be. So if they're currently at 100, but you don't want the transaction to go through unless you can get your GUI down to 80 or less, you can set your max fee to 80. And then your transaction will just sit there pending until gas goes down and your transaction gets executed. Now, if you're in a hurry and you want to buy something quickly, 
maybe you want to get in prices are moving quickly or it's a mint and you want to mint your nft before they run out these kinds of things you're going to want to set your max fee higher than the base fee so you'll set your max fee higher maybe 150 200 something like that there's another way you can get your transaction to happen faster and that's through the priority fee so the priority fee is the tip that you give the miners for prioritizing your transaction usually it's set to some default value maybe it's one to something like that. Depends on the current market conditions. But you can set it higher if you want. And so when I'm trying to purchase an NFT that I want to get very quickly, what I'll do is I'll set my max fee to something higher than the current base fee. So if it was at 100, I might set it to 150 or even 200. And then I'll set my priority fee to something like 5 or 10 or even 50. What that What's going to happen here is the because I'm willing to pay more for gas and I'm willing to tip the miners more, they're going to prioritize my transaction first and mine will get executed first in the blockchain. So it's a way to get your transactions to go through very quickly. Uh, The important thing to realize though, is that the base fee plus the priority fee cannot be greater than your max fee. So if the base fee is a hundred and you put your max fee at 110, but then you offer a priority fee of 50, that really doesn't mean much because the miner can't actually capture all of that all of that tip that you're offering. So keep that in mind as you're setting these things. But it is a nice way for you to be able to control how quickly or how slowly your transaction goes through and how much gas you're willing to pay. Now, just because you set it for a higher value, if GUI is at if the base fee is at 100 GUI right now, and I set it for 200, and I say I'll pay you know 25 for the tip on the priority fee. It doesn't mean that you'll actually pay that full, full amount. Usually it's something less than that uh, because they don't use up the full amount of gas just to tra- uh, process your transaction, but uh, you should be prepared to pay that full amount. So that's how you can set your gas fees to help your transaction go through faster. The one thing you never want to touch is the gas limit. Don't mess with that. That's something that's set by the contract. Usually uh, it's not something that you need to mess around with. So that's how the gas fees work. The most important thing for you to understand is that you need to know what the current gas prices are on the network when you're initializing a transaction. Block native is one that I use for that, but there are others. And then figure out which protocol is being used. Is it just standard where you set the GUI price? Is it this 1559 protocol where you have base fees and priority fees and max fees, that kind of thing. And then just set these values accordingly to how, how much you can afford and how quickly you want your transaction to go through. So that about covers it. Uh, for an NFT transaction. Again, we talked about what you're actually getting, right? Is the art part of the NFT? Is it stored somewhere else? You want to make sure you understand where it is. Is it on the IPFS? Is it on the chain? Is it on a private server somewhere? Knowing that is important. What rights are you getting when you purchase an NFT? What rights to the art or the music? Do you have full commercial, full copyright? That's great, but maybe you don't need that. It depends on what it is. But you should understand what those rights are so that you don't violate a copyright or you don't violate some commercial rights that you thought you had, but you really didn't. Uh, And it also helps you to value the NFT appropriately, right? The fewer rights you have, maybe the less attractive it is, depending on what you you plan to do with it. Uh, And then, of course, we talked about the process of a a transaction. You you approve the transaction, you're interacting with the, the smart contract for that NFT, and there's different ways, whether it's a single different protocols for that, whether it's the ERC-721 or 1155, uh, that transaction then needs to be recorded on the blockchain. And for that to happen, you're going to have to pay a transaction fee or gas fees. And there are the two different models we talked about there. So that pretty much covers the NFT transaction from 
uh, from front to back. Hopefully that helps you have a little bit better understanding of how the transaction works and what you're actually purchasing and where the art is actually stored. These are important little things to understand when you're first getting into this space. And, you know, I even see a lot of people in this space that have been here for a while that don't really understand this stuff. Uh, and it's just about learning, always learning. Even I don't fully understand all the details and, uh, you know, I'm continuing to learn as well. All right. So next time I'm expecting to have Derek back with us, but you know, <laughs> these days you never know. He's pretty busy. Uh, but next episode, we are going to talk a little bit more about this idea of layer one and layer two solutions for the Ethereum blockchain, ETH 2.0. What does that mean? What's coming down the pipe for that? People are excited about it. Maybe it'll reduce gas fees because gas fees have been out of control lately. Maybe it won't. These are things that we're going to talk about and hopefully give you a little better understanding of kind of what the future of the Ethereum blockchain looks like in regards to gas prices and transaction fees and whether we're going to see some easing of those soon because it has been expensive to operate in this market lately. So what does ETH 2.0 bring? What are layers one and two? We'll talk about that. Again, you can find all of our podcasts on our website, the nftreport.io or wherever you're going, wherever you're getting your podcasts. We appreciate any reviews, a five-star review. If you're, if you love what you're hearing, let us know about it. Um, again, you can follow me on Twitter, NFT Olson. Uh, happy to answer any questions you might have. And uh, good luck out there. It's a, it's a crazy market right now. I think there's lots of opportunity. There's a lot of great blue chip projects that are selling at really cheap prices. So if you if you can move things around to get into some of the blue chips, I think that's a good place to be right now. But we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, friends.